Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. My name is Kay Alicetel, and you're listening to Eleven, the official theater podcast. Hello and welcome to Eleven, the official theatre podcast that brings the biggest stars and creatives together in one place to discuss life in the arts. She's the international stage and screen superstar that's gone from belting it on Broadway to being the voice behind an Oscar-nominated song that's become an instant global hit. See most recently as the bearded lady in The Greatest Showman movie, alongside Hugh Jackman and Zendaya. The entire world fell in love with her, making her song, This Is Me, one of the most streamed and downloaded tracks in history, breaking record after record after record, with a lifetime on the stage also under her belt, including as Becky in the original cast of Waitress, in her Tony-nominated performance for Hands on a Hard Body, and in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the musical, she's done it all. So let's find out more and dive deeper in this, an exclusive conversation to kickstart season three including making her Broadway debut in the Campus Musical in New York City, her casually snatching a Tony nomination, her hilarious lamest mess-up that found her thinking the show was set in Britain, fighting against her mother and her mother's wishes to sing and perform for a living, and why she's sick to death of her personal heritage and identity being erased by other people. She also speaks rather openly and candidly about rejecting the world and her crippling personal battle with self-doubt. Get ready, as up next, it's the phenomenal Kiala Settle on this, the next episode of Eleven, the official theatre podcast. Just to let you know, due to the COVID-19 global pandemic, Kiala and I connected digitally, so please forgive any brief moments while we wait for the internet to catch up. Enjoy. She's the bearded lady, the Broadway beltress, and one of the nicest people I've ever had the pleasure of getting to know. Please help me welcome to Eleven. Make some noise, it's Kiala Settle. Oh, so kind. I'm so happy to see you. How are you? I'm doing okay. You know, whatever is to be expected. We're in over year one now of the pandemic, and life before it was will never be the same. And so I think a lot of people, myself included, are trying to figure out what that means. And and hopefully they're successfully doing it. I am, but um, a lot of shit has gone down, not just worldwide, but here in, in the country that I live in as well. I am in the USA. I live in California, Southern California currently. And um, it's it's been a ride. It's been a ride losing people that I love and um, living in their remembrance and in their legacy and, you know, trying to figure out where I can best assist the world now, if not even for myself, but for the rest of the world. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Very loaded answer. Sorry about that. And we've already started on the accent and we should say, because to <laughs> us, it would be funny, but to other people, they might be like, Okay, well, actually- they can. They can say all they want. It doesn't matter. My um, my sister lives uh, up north and has for many years uh, with her husband and children. And my dad is originally from Manchester. So it's I been love that. from New Zealand. Um, and so I've had accents coming at me my whole life. <laughs> so it's very weird to, when I hear something, I jump on it. And it used to annoy my mom to the nth degree because she loves she loved being in America. She's no longer with us. She's been passed away for a while, but um, God bless her. Um, so every time we would sneak into the act, because a lot of us do, a lot of the kids do. In fact, all of us do. I'm the oldest of five. And when we are talking either to our family in the UK or in New Zealand, the accent just slips in. And as children, mum would always tell us not to do that. And we couldn't help it. But your brains just do that when you're learning as a child. So if you're talking to all these people and it just kicks in, you can't say, stop thinking like that because it just happens. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, and it keeps going on. Like my my brother and his wife um, who have been to New Zealand many times speak in that accent, but they live in America and so which is very interesting because there's a lot of people that, you know, call them foreigners, although they were 
and race here, but that's what it is. So, but yeah, it's the accent drives me nuts. Watch when I finish this, when I finish this podcast, I'll be walking around trying to get the accent out of my head. It'll take probably about a minute or two, but it, it'll happen. It'll happen. <laughs> Just drives me nuts. Sorry, everyone. Sars, not Sars. Yeah, sorry, not sorry. But also, like, I love this perception that people have of the UK, which is actually really incorrect. So I'm so glad you just said what you said, mm -hmm. because people think like, oh, don't mimic a British accent. But yet people in the UK, because we're such a small island with so many different so dialects, many. we yeah. love doing other, like I do an amazing, I'm from the, the East Midlands, but I love doing the West Midlands accent and the <laughs> London accent. And it's like, Duh, we like to lampoon ourselves. Yeah. Like that's sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. The fun. And it's the same thing in the US. They do the same thing as well because it's such a diverse, you know, conglomerate of accents as well. Because you've got the south, you've got the northeast, you've got the northwest, you've got, you know, the southwest, and then all the middle, you know, mid-America, they've got their own accents as well that's that are very tied into so almost the Canadian aspect of it. If you go into the northern part of the United States, you can hear a bit of Canadian, you know, in there because it's you, you can't help it. Look, mate, accents are accents. They're going to come out whether they do or not. What are you going to do? You know, if you exactly. want to learn more about it, be my guest. If you don't, well, I'm very, very sars, not sars. This is already turning out to be my favorite episode of this <laughs> podcast ever. And I can't believe the first sort of 10 minutes of this conversation has been our obsession with accents. Clearly, yes. Anyway, I've got to try oh, to be serious. Yay. Because I've got so many questions to ask you because you've had this incredible career and you've also done this. It's quite funny. And I was laughing at myself yesterday when I was preparing for this interview because you've sort of done all the shows that I love because I immediately thought, well, she's a Broadway belteress. She's a singer. She's an actor. Whereas actually that's not the gig that you went for. In terms of self-description, you would describe yourself as an R&B singer, right? My mum was a singer um, and she left that whole world when she met my father and then they got married and left New they got married in New Zealand and then came back to the US in Hawaii and that's where our family began and I'm the oldest of five kids but we were brought up with all of this music movie musicals that my mum and dad could get their hands on because they were fascinated by it as well because I mean if you look at them they are immigrants coming to this country seeing things that you can't really I mean at the time my dad was living in a council house, you know, getting his water up the street and bringing it back and having a, you know, having a bath in the living room. And my mum was in a th nearly a third world country at the time. New Zealand was still so very, you know, trying to find its way in the world. And she, um, so these, these were all, the, the whole idea of Americanization and what it meant was, it was just like gold. It was platinum gold in their hands and they had it. And so whatever they could give to us, as far as entertainment, we just took, we just soaked it up. So I was watching all these movie musicals like Grease and Sound of Music and all these Disney, old Disney films, because at the time the Disney Corporation had come out with the Disney Channel and it was basically our babysitter <laughs> at that point. We just turned it on and mum was like, yeah, see ya, I'm off. And we were like, yeah, right, bye. And just sat there, watched, you know, Hayley Mills or Leslie Ann Warren, all these people trying, you know, having all these, you know, beautiful stories happening in front of us on the telly and um what was so interesting for us is that that was the life we knew when I got into high school I learned about William Shakespeare and I was fascinated by it because it was a different language to me and yet it meant the exact same thing as every emotion that I had been going through or I knew I would go through as a human being because that's what's so great about that language and the book so I studied that that's what I wanted to study. And my mom said, don't do that. Don't do that. Just keep singing. Just keep singing. And I was like, I don't want to. So it, to spite her, I kept doing theater to spite her because she didn't want me to do it. She actually told me I was really bad at it. Bless her heart. Probably because she just didn't want me to do it. And that's fine. I was like, go on, keep telling me because I'm going to keep not doing anything that you want me to do. It's fine. Just keep doing it. I don't care. And so I did. I went right into Shakespeare, dug my heels in. I loved it. I was in a Shakespeare competition, my first one. I think I was 14 or 15. And I placed um, second place, which was the first runner up in that uh, competition, which is in Hawaii. It's, I mean, no one speaks the bard in Hawaii, but they were, it was there. And I loved it. And I loved I loved, um, I loved everything about it and I kept studying it. And um, to this day, I, I give so much props to that culture of telling stories in that manner. And I, I remember being in high school, begging my dad 
dad, please let me go to London and study. Please, 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 please. Every year I remember asking him. And every year my dad would sneak a pamphlet. He'd get a pamphlet from overseas and, you know, sort of put it on my bed and my mom would find out about it and she'd go, no, nope, and she'd just take it out and be gone. And so every year I vied to sort of go and study and it was always, it was always, no, 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 no. I fell into musical theatre the first time. Uh, it was in university and I was 17, just about 10, 18. They were doing a production of Into the Woods. <laughs> And I had heard that the director had already promised the witch, the lead role, to another girl. And I thought, that is so shady. Why can't you let someone else have a go? Maybe you're wrong. And I was with my mates at the time and they said, well, why don't you go for it? And I was like, I'm only 17. The girl that's, that is apparently doing it is like 21 years old. I can't do that. And they said, why not? And so I kind of looked at them and I said, yeah, why not? Because it was just at that point it was me going, right, I'm just going to prove you wrong. Don't care. And so I learned the whole school, the entire school. We went into the audition and I said, I'm auditioning for this. And he goes, right, go on then. Did it. Brought me back for callbacks with the girl that had already promised the role. And I said, hiya, love. Right, here we go. Have you got this one in your arsenal? Have you got this one in your arsenal? And it was just basically I just came more prepared than she did and whacked it out of the park and I got the part. Oh, so I proved him wrong. Right. <laughs> just, and that was really all it was. And we used to get change for it because I was majoring in music and French and dance and um, theatre because you get paid for it okay. at university here. I mean, you've probably got like maybe $100, $200, but you got it. That was from a very young age. I was always bargaining with my mum because she asked me to sing all the time at a very young age, which I didn't want to do. And I remember being about six or seven years old and she was like, can you please sing in church? And I said, well, what do I get? Okay. And that was when it just started being a job. So I've never, I've never looked at it any other way. It was, that, that's how I got into hairspray. A woman got on the other line because um, I went into all the auditions. I wanted to be one of one of the black kids. I thought, oh, obviously, I'm a person of colour. I'm going to be that. That's not true at all. I, that did not happen for my life. I ended up being the standby for the lead role, and I went, oh, all right, I'll take it. How much does it cost? And the late, uh, how much does it pay? And the lady told me, I was like, right, I'll take that because it was money. I mean, it really was. <laughs> it really was. I got sucked into it because it was paying more than my regular job, which was just, you know, being a phone operator at a casino at the time. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll do this. And then I kept doing it. And then after a while, it was like, if you don't do this, Keala, you're going to be really upset at your life and you don't need that. No yeah. one needs that. So go out and do this. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, then you know. And I kept doing that and it kept coming. And that it happened like that all the way up to The Greatest Showman, which is the exact same situation. I said, how much is this read through? What are you going to give me if I sing this song? Oh, $500 and a bottle of Jameson. You're on, mate. That's what I thought was going to happen. And that is absolutely not the case. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's very, very crazy the way that all that went down. Did there ever come a point where your mum saw you do theatre and went, okay, I, I think she's onto something here. Like, okay, fair mm -hmm. enough. Actually, I did a production at university my last year of Gypsy. Okay. It's another one where a girl was promised the role and I was like, right, I'm taking that right. Just just to have a challenge to, to be able to be like, oh, I'm going to be better than her or at least try. I don't know if I was better, but I got the role. And Wh Which character did you go for? The Mama Rose. Mama Rose? Yeah. <gasps> okay, everybody that's a musical theatre lover and all the gays in the world, are, are you there? Are you listening? <laughs> Keala Settle has played Mama Rose in Gypsy. Find the I clips, off you go, please. <laughs> we need to, for the service of God, find them. Oh, mate. Uh, yes, I did. Um, and I remember looking out into the audience at the end and I, my mum had these glasses that she would wear. They were literally like quadfocals. <laughs> Like you could see and you could see into the future the lower you got onto that onto the bottoms of those, you know, lenses. 
But it was very, at the, because that's, this is how she was. She wore these shades. They were almost like um, sunglasses color, but they were like dark gray. And then they, you know, down the quad of the lenses, it got to a regular, like a gradient color. It just went clear. And I could see the shimmer of those glasses because it was a specific shape that she wore. And I could see the hair that was tied to them. And I thought, oh my God, she's here. And after the show, I actually remember taking my clothes off, putting my street clothes on and bolting out the front door to see if she was there. And it was her. And I hugged her and she kept saying to me, I'm so sorry. It was, it was, I, that's a great memory. I've, I've not had that memory since it happened. I appreciate you asking me that question. Um, Cause my mother and I had a very, very tumultuous relationship up until um, the end of her life. But um, that was a really good memory really good memory yeah she apologized and said I'm so sorry I doubted you this was incredible and also because of the role that I was playing I was basically playing my mom so in that instant that I saw her in the back that I thought I saw her in the back I was horrified in that same moment feeling that you know horrific feeling I there was a tinge of hope because I thought well if she's made it this far because we're at the end right if she's made it this far maybe she'll stick around and she did and that's when I realized that and my dad was there as well who's always been a staunch supporter of everything that I do he um she told me that she always sat in the back of all my shows at uni and disappeared before the bouts I had no idea until then why do you think that why do you think that was I don't know I, I mean I've I mean I've thought about it numerous times even in her passing we'll never I'll never understand especially back in those days I say back in those days which wasn't really long ago what makes someone from another country want to move somewhere else obviously for a better life and what that entails because they're used to and I mean I'm sure I don't know what that would even mean for you if you left here or you left England to come to another place where its culture is completely different you they'll probably always make fun of you I mean we talked about accents for the first half hour of this you know podcast so that would also be into play which is so of course silly but it's the truth of the matter because they still do it to my mom they still did it to my mom they still do it to my dad it's and also to try and figure out how to live in that Mm. and of course my mom was a person of color um a polynesian person which a lot of people in the u.s once we left hawaii because we did they didn't know what that was i i don't know why i don't know if it was because of a life that she wanted or didn't want or moments where she was trying to understand who I was because we never had those conversations ever um, because she was always pushing me out and very Mama Rose and I was always going, right, what are you going to pay me? If you pay me, I'll go out. If you give me this, I'll go out. If you get me this, I will go out and do it, you know. And then literally not even releasing music until she passed away for me. And I know why I did that, which I'll honestly tell everyone. It was because I knew that if I did it after her passing, it was something that I could have and it wasn't hers because everything else I was doing was hers. And to be fair, in the culture that she was raised in, that's how it goes. But we were in America. So I've got my dad's culture that I'm dealing with, which is barely there because my mum's the one, you know, that's full force. And then us going, right, you've got a job. This is your job, Keala. This is your sister's job. This is your brother's job. This is your sister's job. And this is your sister's job. That's what we had. It wasn't really like, oh, we have dreams. It was mum and dad. Oh, we have dreams. You're living them. And I think, and I'd be interested to talk to every first generation American because that might be the same thing. It might very well be the same thing. But to be fair... Look at what I've got because of that, because that was my, I'm talking to you. Do you know what I mean? That's my job. And I am realizing that there are other people that are listening because they want to. And because I want to make a connection to them in whatever way I can, because I'm understanding how much that means to me and in turn, how much that means to the rest of the world, if that makes any sense. It absolutely does. And I I guess the next question I want to ask you is, is that then incredibly frustrating, if that's even the right word? I imagine when people try and remove your history and your identity from you, when they say Kiala Settle is a white person, for example, do you suddenly go, are you fucking joking me? I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I've gotten a lot of that from my own culture because my dad is British. So there's that already because New Zealand was, you know, the whole Treaty of Waitangi and everything. So when my dad and mum got married and they had kids and we went back to New Zealand that first or second time when I had some semblance of understanding what was going on, 
there were fights. There were, you know, you're not my daughter. You married this white man. And we, we all saw it. All the kids saw it. We were susceptible to it. And that was what our life was because we were, we were equal parts of those two people. We were a mixed race already. And, and I love my Maori family. That's the native term. I love them dearly. And I wish that I could have a relationship with them. I don't know what it would be only because before I even got famous, it was like, well, you're not really. And it was never from my, it was never, I never heard it from my family in New Zealand. But a lot of people, when I would go back to Hawaii and I would be going to uni there, telling me, you're not Polynesian, mate. You're not. Just because I wasn't dark enough, even if I had the features, it doesn't matter. Yes. And I still go through it and it sucks. It hurts me. But I mean, when I had the opportunity to talk about it on a global scale, um, a couple of years back, I had to say, yeah, I live in America. I was born and raised in America, but my blood is this and my blood is this. And I'm so proud of it. And you can't tell me that I'm not. I mean, you can go for it, go for the gold. You can do it till you're blue in the face. It's not going to matter because I'll still be me at the end of the day. Do you know what I mean? And, and going through this pandemic has been a jumping board into which sounds so bizarre, but it is. And I think it has been for everyone in some sense or another. It's been a jumping board for me to jump off of into a world that is mine. That, But it's not one that I create. I'm starting to create it, but it's pulling from people that have always been there. And always, you know, I've got my mates who tell me, Kiala, you need to tell your story. Don't be afraid anymore. Because I have been. When The Greatest Showman happened, I had no way of processing it. I couldn't even love myself. So for a world to come at me and say, we love you, not only could I not handle it, I rejected it. That's why I say when you met me at the Graham Norton show, I was not okay. I was I was lich. I'm going to take that word. It's, it's a Michelle Visage word. I'm taking it. I'm using it, but I've given it credit. I was lich trying to hide, still trying to hide because I couldn't process anyone loving me at all, let alone myself. And that was a lot of work that I had to do that I've been able to do during this time and understanding what that means and not being overwhelmed by it, but embracing it because of how beautiful the human condition is and understanding that I have an opportunity to represent that. And it's my favorite thing ever. You can't lie against the human condition. The human condition is what it is. And we can either celebrate it or be afraid of it. The fact that you've been on that journey, however difficult, and I don't want to negate away from any of the difficulty that it's been to get to this point, at least you got there. That's the beauty of it. It's when you never, it's if you never get there, like for my mom, I don't know if she ever got there. And, it, and I can't think on it too long because I'll just fall apart and I don't want to because she's passed on and I can only hope and pray to whoever or whatever in the universe that she's, you know, at peace because I don't know if she ever got there. I celebrate in honour of those that I've lost, not only my ancestors, not only my mum, but, you know, my mates that I've lost this year. They celebrated life to the fullest. And who am I? to sit back and be afraid, almost my duty to actually step out and sort of go, right, let's do it. Let's do this together. Well, I can help you with that because I'm going to celebrate you right now, which I... (laughs) Oh God, here we go. (laughs) I I did joke before we started recording that I have followed a lot of Kiala's career and she has done a lot of the shows that if I were you, which some days I pretend I am, then... Oh, I'm in then I would want to do it. And one show that I believe, and again, the the beauty of the internet is it tells a lot of truths and a lot of lies. So if any of this is wrong, I apologize completely. But I do believe that your Broadway debut was Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. It was, and it was actually yesterday. I'm just realizing it now. It was yesterday. Oh my, yesterday, years ago. Yesterday, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, yeah. Which for me, I mean, I remember that show closing in London and literally being heartbroken. Like that was my first sort of experience of coming of age of of literally mourning the loss of a show. And then apart from the fact you cut out the Kylie Minogue bits, which still cuts very deep. Oh, it really um, does. Trust me, I know. I know. We talked about that a lot. The Madonna bit. I liked Madonna. I came and saw the show. I liked it. Obviously, I do love Kylie a little bit more, if I'm allowed to say that. My mentions will go crazy now. I'm sorry. But but that show, I mean, to go from what we were just talking about with your mum and obviously you desperately trying to do theatre to like being in an original Broadway cast, mm-hmm. 
I mean, talk about 360. And that was the moment. That was the actual moment when I said, Kiala, if you don't do this, because I was petrified. Every time I got a job, it was for money. And I said, right, I'm going to do what they've asked me to do. I will stay here for a year, get my money, get out, get my car, go on and leave. And halfway through, nearly halfway through every single job, gratefully and graciously, I was asked to be a part of another one. And when I went to the auditions, which was hilarious for Priscilla, because it was like I came home because it was all these Aussies. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm here. I'm here. There's my family here. And that day of tech, actually, so a few weeks before, 10 years ago, that was when I got the call about Hands on a Hard Body. Which is another one of my favourite shows. So we're doing well. I think there's a bit of a theme going on here. But that's when I got that call. I thought, right, fine. I'll do this as well. I'll just keep whatever someone says. I'll do it. I'll just do it till it's run its course. <laughs> and it just kept coming. It just, and Which was, again, such a blessing. Such a blessing and such a saviour to me. And that's two shows back to back that you did that both had cast albums, right? So you were getting sort of like the full Broadway experience. You were not getting yeah, just a, absolutely. A, yeah. You know, originating, getting to getting to create roles, getting to be the first to do anything, but then also to get to do a cast recording, which means that you know, weirdos like me get to sit at home and pretend like they're in the show and love it. You're not a weirdo. Stop calling yourself that. <laughs> Again, this probably says a lot about me, and I'm sort of embarrassing myself a lot today. I sometimes it's your like a- podcast. Go for gold, love. <laughs> I always, I always feel like you know, like when people say, like, "What's your favorite show? What's your favorite this and that?" And I'm always like, well, "I don't know." The one role that I always wanted was to be Diva One in Priscilla, right? And I was like, if I was in that show, I would get Diva Envy. I'd be like, I hope they fall. I hope they can't sing. Did you get Diva Envy? I have to say yes, because I knew the girls, two of the three girls that were Divas. Divas yeah. one and I don't know who two or three. And it's and it's very catty. And I don't know if I've ever apologized. I hope I have. And if I haven't, I'm sorry, Smash. They were an incredible group of girls. And like I said, two of the three girls were actually my sisters, who I still talk to to this day. But we made a family in that show we had to there was no other choice um because of the stories that we were telling and also because they were changing so much of the UK show to cater to the US again like the Kyla Minogue and the Madonna thing it wasn't so much the envy because we were still singing back up with them there were three divas and each diva had a double that was in the cast so along with the three divas you had the the three female roles that are featured ensemble. One of them covered Diva 1, one of them covered Diva 2, and one of them covered Diva 3, the whole show. So whether or not we were on um, stage, we'll be changing, you know what I mean? Backstage, we're still singing. Yeah. Like we're singing through the opera and everything that's on. I'm not, not that I'm giving away spoilers, but you know what I mean. But yeah, I mean, of course, when it started, it was like, oh, fuck yeah, I wish I was a diva. And then when you get start getting into the work of it all, you're like, thank God I'm not a diva. Because they went, those poor girls, they went everywhere at every hour of the day and night promoting that show nonstop. It was nonstop. And then they had to come back, get hoisted up in the air by your crotch and just sit, just sat there hoping nothing falls or breaks or stops because when something would um, malfunction in the fly, it would just automatically seize up. So you'd just get stuck where you are, which happened numerous times. Um but yeah, I mean, it happened in the beginning, but then after that, it was like, oh my God, no way, Jose, I'll just stay down here. <laughs> I'll just stay down here and sing a part. Raining men, hallelujah, it's raining men. You know, I'll do that. Because I, so Jackie was diva number one, and that's my sister. So I, I, I doubled her. And I, it was so funny one night, because we, we'd actually, we did hairspray together. Mm-hmm. So I knew, I knew her since 2003. And then Priscilla came up, it was 2011 on Broadway. We did it in Toronto in 2010, and then we came to Broadway, and we were singing in the back, prepping for a scene, and I remember us both singing the same part, because that's what we do in the show, and I looked at her, and she looked at me, because we sounded exactly the same. It was like, stereophonic sound, oh yeah. So standing next to her, she was singing, we both looked at each other, and we couldn't say anything, because our mics were hot. So we're singing, 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 look up in the mirror. She's looking at me and I'm looking at her. And then we basically just split apart, freaking out, just shaking our heads going, 
no, 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 no. But yeah, it, that show was so much fun. It was so much fun. Oh my God, it was so much fun. And didn't have the best insults as well. I mean, it's like one oh. of my, the, the Australian twangs and sort of, I mean, slightly homophobic, slightly sort of conditioned remarks, but like obviously right. said with love, like it's obviously telling a story and, and they're trying to make a point, but so fun and tried to make sure that you understood that they were doing it for a reason, that they were trying to tell a story. And then you just leave going, I feel 200% better about the yes. of life. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I remember when they said they were closing and I'm like, what are you doing? You're actually walking away from a very, very popular show. I had no idea what was going on. I couldn't believe it when they said they were closing because they could still be up, well, not in COVID, but I bet you money if they came back post-COVID, they would, it would be right back up there. It's just, it is. It's that feeling of you can change the world. You can do yeah. anything you want with the right intention. The world is your oyster. And also in a world where drag is ever more mainstream, and that's a whole different discussion yes. about if I think drag being mainstream is a good thing or not, but drag being in the mainstream means that anything that celebrates difference in particular and drag is like, hello, like this would just like, this would send up the roof. I mean, I remember MacArthur Park is my favourite Donna Summer song ever. So that was always my favourite moment. But like the cupcake numbers, I was like, are you kidding me? There's like 15 men in drag singing Donna Summer with like, I think it was Will Swenson at the front. Bell yeah, I was like, yeah. I think I'm going to like OD in a minute. I cannot yeah, deal with this. But think about it. Look, I'll be the first to tell you, I started binge watching RuPaul's Drag Race in January because I needed, I needed moral support. I needed it for myself. And I binged it and continued to binge it and then got to Drag Race UK. Woohoo! And then I got to, you know, Drag Race um, Canada and I'm trying to branch out as fast as I can because I'm trying to pick everything up. But you forget, not only are these queens of drag making a political statement, they are giving you the free pass, as it were, to live your fucking life. Mm -hmm. However you want to, as long as you're not hurting anyone. And be as loving as caddy, as as everything as you possibly can, whatever it is that you want to do. It gives you that, it gives you that boost that you need to tell you, yes, you are, yes, you can, and yes, you will be. I mean, I love it. I, I've always loved it. I've always loved it. I'm so glad you love the UK one as well, because I must confess. Oh, I love Lawrence Cheney. Oh, all the people at the end, bag of chips, much better. All of them. I mean, my God. That's why I can't wait to get back to the UK. I'm going, right, let's just look for all of the drugs, going to all their shows. I don't care where they are. Get in a car. We'll hop a plane. I don't care. We're going. God, I'm gushing over this. Anyways. And also they have musical episodes like, hello, like they love musicals as much as I do. <laughs> Anybody that listens to Eleven, and thankfully there's thousands of people do, will know how much I love Sarah Bareilles. So this is just going to be Ooh. one big giant loving because I... I've met her, I've spoken to her, I've interviewed her, I've hosted the Pride karaoke that we had in London. Like, I've done as much as I physically can to support that show. And I'm heartbroken beyond belief that, unfortunately, it's time in London has come to an end. I know there's a UK tour happening. And the question I wanted to ask you, apart from, was it amazing? What was it like working with Sarah was, Kiala Settle, where did the iconic, go ahead, where did that come from in I Didn't Plan It? How did that happen? Tell me everything. That's how she wrote the song. And it was actually shorter than it was. And we were in, um, we were in out-of-town tryouts in Cambridge. I, I sang it for her and then she said, oh, we've got to extend this. And so she extended it, which was amazing. She's just to right off the bat, she's so lovely. She's so lovely and so kind. It was one of the hardest shows to do um, because there were so many women on board. And as much as that's an incredible thing, Everyone was trying to get their opinion across and it was hard for the people that were up above to sort of maneuver into that and tell us and then come to us and give us an idea of what they wanted. Um, but it happened. It just was really, really, because we were trying to mind read because we weren't getting all the information that we needed, but it came out in the end. That was what, and, and I think that was what the most important part of it was, was that the message of what does it mean for a woman to be going through domestic abuse? How do they survive? It was so important, so important, and, and has been for decades and will continue to be, because unfortunately it'll probably still be an issue for years to come. 
Um, and it was so vital that we got that message across. And she was such a huge factor in, in doing so. She, she was, the music that she wrote was lovely, absolutely lovely, and said everything that needed to be said. We loved that music. And I mean, everyone on that show, I'm still good mates with um, Jesse and uh, Jenna. I'm still very good mates with them. So it's, it's, and Nick was on that show too. He was the first person to leave, Nick Cordero. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it was a beautiful story. And I'm glad that it's getting a UK tour revival because it needs to be told. It needs to be told in whatever way possible. Because instead of it being, you know, all about, you know, a woman being like almost like a carousel. It's not a carousel where these men are like doing this and this and that and that. It's about women trying to figure out how to be women for each other and on their own in the eyes of the rest, you know, in the eyes of the community and what that means. And can I break down? I'm going to break down what happens now. And then, you know, she looks around and she's got all the mates next to her. It's it's a beautiful story. I do want to ask you about a clip that went viral of you because, again, I, you know I'm obsessed with you, but it was really making me laugh. And I think for the best reasons, because it was you in Les Mis. And it was just all the comments and everything was just like, basically, is she joking? Like, this is ridiculous. How can she do this? Because it's just you opting the shit out of Madame Thenardier oh, going what? up. And it's, and, and it's obviously funny because you are hysterically anyway, uh, hysterically funny anyway. But, I mean... Was riffing Les Mis in your sort of foreseeable future? Is that what you plan to do? Or is that just another Kialaism that happened by mistake? It happened in the it happened in the rehearsal. Not even in the rehearsal. It happened, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in the audition, actually. Because it was just low. And I'm going, what is this? And I'm being honest, I've never seen Les Mis. I told you, this theatre thing. I'm very grateful for it, but I've never seen Les Mis. I had never heard the music up until that point. And um, I went in for it and I, I did the octave up just because I could and it was more exciting to me. And Lawrence and them were in the room and they were like, who are you? Where are you from? And as we... I start, And I was talking in this bloody accent, of course, because I was around British people, so I was going off. And then I just basically pulled out of it. So I'm from America, you know, an American accent. And they're like, get the fuck out. Um, so thankfully I got cast. And when we were doing the rehearsals, they were talking about all the things that were happening in France during, you know, the story of Les Mis. And embarrassingly enough, it's very true. I said, France, this happened in France. I thought it was British. Not even, I'm not done yet. I'm not done with, that's the beauty. This story's not done. Lawrence and them come up, yes, Kiala, the title. I said, well, you never hear French people singing Les Mis, do you? You just see, you hear British people singing it. I thought it was just, you know, I thought it was a UK story. I never got interviewed for anything. <laughs> Rightly so. Because I told you, I don't know what Les Mis is about. I think idea. that's pretty fair. Like, um, but I did have a good time. I mean, a lot of people that were in the show took um, the title to heart. There were a lot of people that, um, because it's a heavy show and they in turn were heavy as well, <laughs> walking out of the theatre. So, but the time that I had there was, was, it was hard because that was when I was losing my mother as well. Yeah, but if I had a chance to do it again for like, you know, a month or two, month or two, three, I'd totally do it. Same, same option, everything. I'd do the same thing. I mean, why change a masterpiece? I mean, you know you're good at it. So. Well, sure it's a masterpiece. So, so Uncle Cameron comes in and goes, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. I do wonder what Karen McIntosh thinks of you opting up. I, I, someone should ask him. If anyone's listening from the McIntosh empire, please ask him if he approves of it. Because I bet you he bloody loves it. I think he it. liked it. I you think, know right. Loved. I mean, I, or they would have told me, no, don't do that. But maybe they're going to tell me if ever I get called again. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Just, you know, stick to what's regular. <laughs> You are quite famous now, so I, th I think the phone may ring one day. So let's. <laughs> there is a topic that we haven't really discussed yet, so let's get the elephant in the room, and that is The Greatest Showman, because, uh, I mean, not that I want to make this whole conversation about it, because I've, as I say, I've been very lucky to talk to you about it before, but I feel like now you've had the opportunity to breathe, and that film has become iconic. I don't think there's any other word for it. It's, I think it's like the second most successful album in UK history 
ever. Didn't a film like beat Titanic or something? Like the the, the sort of the roll call of firsts and awards that it got was insane. And I was having a look online in terms of your infamous song, This Is Me, which is an anthem for so many different communities and so many different people. And on Spotify alone, it has over 500 million streams. My brain can just about get to 500 million, but that's one platform, Kiala. Like that's not iTunes and all all the other rest, all the rest. Looking back now on not just that song, but your time in with that movie, with that film, how do you sum it up? Um, I wasn't ready for it at all. I know that in the moment of filming it and um, uh, creating the film, I was absolutely there. But in some, just like so many periods of my life, I mean, I talk about this with my therapist a lot. What I didn't bank on was how many people would have reacted to it at all, let alone the love that I would get from it. And it scared the living daylights out of me. Scared the living daylights out of me. It scared me so much that um, my body couldn't handle it. It couldn't handle the stress of it all because I was creating more stress every time I went out to do, you know, an interview, you know, with you or being at the Graham Norton show, which I wish I could do again because I was so scared. I was so petrified. I was so scared because I, I wasn't ready to talk about any of that. And I didn't have a choice because I played a character that somehow had tapped into who I really was. But I had no one safe to talk about it with. And now I do. But looking back on it, obviously, I'm really grateful for it because I've, I've had an opportunity to sing it around the world and hear people in different countries that speak different languages singing it back to me, which cripples me with joy because they can still understand it and they know what it means because of the emotion that's in that song. And it's all, it's all about the human condition. That's why it touches so many people. And it's interesting because it doesn't get that kind of reception in the US. Across the pond, every direction it does, but not here. And I say that because I say that just to say sometimes I don't really recognize because I live here. So I don't really recognize it as much as it's per se, if I lived in the UK or I lived in Aussie or I lived, you know, somewhere in the Commonwealth and understood what its impact really has been and continues to be. And I realized during this pandemic, my job, should I choose to accept it, is to be vocal triage for the soul, wherever that soul is, internationally, intergalactically, wherever it is, whoever needs it, that's what I'm meant to do. And uh, I accept that challenge. And in that acceptance, accept the love that's coming back to me. It's intense. I guess it's this weird sort of juxtaposition between a character that goes on a journey to being very strong versus a woman who's playing that character. Never was, yep. Who quite simply just never doesn't go was. on a journey. Yeah. Yep. Never was. I never was strong. And am I strong today? I don't know. I know that I woke up today and chose to, to stay awake and stay alive. And I know that's a win for me. And that's enough for me. Is that strength? I don't know. And I can't ask, really. It does, that can't be something that um, defines that. But I do know that what gives me courage is to, ironically enough, learn to accept love. That's what gives me courage because it's still so such a foreign um, thing for me to do but I'm still doing that and learning how to do it just being on this podcast alone is a part of that and um, I don't think I would ever talk like this at all any other time before this because I would never be in a space that I could for myself because I'd be too afraid but I'm not I don't want to be anymore do you think there's anything that the Kiala that recorded that song and those lyrics in particular has taught the Kiala now I'm thinking specifically of from the lyrics of that song? To be what I said I was in the song, to not be afraid. That's what it was. I was singing about not being afraid and yet that's all I was. All I wanted to do was hide in the dark and be behind everything. My story was still going on and people were trying to get in and I was going, no, no, no access, no, not even, because I was afraid of myself, just afraid of myself, let alone anyone else. And a lot of that has to do with loving myself, a lot of that 
has to do with that. And um, and like I said, I've been through a lot. I actually wrote a book about it <laughs> that during this pandemic that's going to come out probably in the next year or so about this journey and just sort of going, oh, that's why I did that. That's why I felt this way. That's why I felt that way. And it, it's, it's, an, it's an eye-opener for me and it gives me a chance to open up now and be and go okay and I remember when it hit the first time that it hit and then the second time that it hit the first time was at the O2 in London when I sang this is me on the Hugh Jackman tour when I heard singing I lost it I lost it I couldn't I that was when that was the first time that I let myself feel that much love and I can't I don't know how to describe it it just it made me fall apart, but it wasn't a bad thing. It was a beautiful thing. And then the next time I felt it when I was, I had the chance to go to Mexico City and do the same thing. And I asked them in Spanish to sing with me and they did. And they sang in English and I cried the whole time. It was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. And I, that's again, when I realized that I was part of something that's not just me, it's, it's, it's all connected. And it made me excited, made me really excited. I wish there's a way that I could equate the amount of love that that you have given to other people if you knew that you would never ever doubt yourself again someone else told me that I don't and I don't know how I think it's good that I can't because I would probably collapse I would probably collapse but what I do know is that I'll keep giving it non-stop why not I'm still living still breathing I know they are developing a stage musical of The Greatest Showman, which is incredibly exciting. Is that the sort of thing that you would consider wanting to be part of, or would you not? Nope. nope. The quickest no I've ever had. (laughs) Um, Because uh, I could do that for a 16 hour, let me tell you what the 16 hour day, was it 16, 12? Can't remember. It was a two digit hour day for that first filming in The Ring. I had seven people on me. My dress was 25 pounds. I don't know, I don't know what that means in stone. Um, but I was I had a corset on, so I was bound by a corset underneath, and then I was put into a dress which was tightened in the back as well. So I was double bound. I had boots that had no um protective bottoms. So to this day, I actually have problems with the balls of my feet because of the dancing that we kept doing over and over again. I couldn't sit down unless I had a specific chair and people had to lift my dress and tell me to back up basically like a, like a lorry just going boop, 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 and then just go, yeah, you've hit it, go on. And they had to take my shoes off every take so that I could put, um, Uggs on, and on top of it, there was a person there with a glue gun, not a gun, but a glue pen that would keep applying our alcohol, I should say, um, isopropyl alcohol to my wig and my facial hair because it kept uh, sweating off. Yeah. So they'd have to apply alcohol and a bit more glue to keep it on for the next sequence. And then I, and so the hair and the makeup people were there as well because it was a two. They were um, they were tagging each other it was like a two group thing so that the hair person was there and the wig was attached the the beard was attached to the to the wig with glue so they had to always be there I had a fan person there and I had someone holding a drink of water for me so that's just filming mate (laughs) if you think I'm gonna do that eight shows a week Sod off, mighty. There's no way in hell I'm doing that. Now, if they've got an easier way to do it, bring it on. Otherwise, nah. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. Okay, my very final question for you. We were talking at the very beginning about how you got into the industry, how obviously it was a family affair, how obviously there were challenges and hurdles. And then we've gone through all of the successes that you've had. And you've had so many more beyond this that we, that we would be here for literally hours upon hours talking about. And you're constantly going through so many success stories as well as personal struggles, which I think makes them mean a little bit more, if that makes sense. I think you appreciate it more. But I guess thinking back to the very beginning and when you first had that, you know, that want and desire, oh, please make this happen. I want to just be on Broadway. I want to be in theatre. And I'm curious as to... What do you think that Kiala would think of the Kiala that I get the pleasure of talking to for the last hour? What would she think? I don't. Oof. 
I think a lot of this would go over her head. I think, she, I mean, she was so young, God. Um, yeah, a lot of it would go over her head. It would probably be someone just sitting there listening and going, oh, what's she on about? I don't know what she, you know, like she had, she's, because she's got no idea. That person has no idea what's in store and what the sacrifice is to get there. You know, I I haven't seen my family in years, you know, because of that, because I chose, I chose to do this. You know, I did, you know, I also I chose to spite my mum and I didn't realise that the two would intertwine and kind of go, yeah, well, you can keep going if you like. Right, well, that's all I know. So come on then, let's go. And actually ha- making a go of it and ha- and enjoying it. I don't think that the Kiala in 2002 2003 who was trying to play a dynamite in a musical which is obviously incorrect um would even understand a conversation like this and I think I would hope that she would look at it in wonder and use it as a tool for herself to sort of ward off anything that would get in her way if that makes any sense it does. It does. And do you know what I think she would be? Is very proud of you, as I am. And I think as everybody is, because you are oh. amazing. And Kiala Settle, I adore you. Oh, thank you, love. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for giving me a lot more of your time than we originally agreed. So I'm very, very grateful for that. But when someone's oh. as fabulous as you and as fun as you, might I point out, because this is the funnest podcast I've done, shit's going down. We're not turning this record off. So thank you very much for your time. I love you. You've been listening to Eleven, the official theatre podcast. Find out more about Eleven at elevenpodcast.com or via our official social channels. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.